Welcome to this episode of Disease Du Jour on the topic of equine rabies with Dr. Amy Johnson. I'm your host, Kim Brown, publisher of Equimanagement. The Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you in 2021 by Merck Animal Health. Dr. Johnson received her DVM from Cornell University and is a diplomate of the American College of Veterinary Internal Medicine, Large Animal and Neurology. She is the Section Chief of Internal Medicine and Ophthalmology at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Johnson. Thank you very much for having me. Well, this is an extremely important topic, I think, not only for veterinarians, but for veterinarians who want to try to educate their horse owners a little bit and protect themselves and their staffs. So let me start with you. You deal with a lot of neurologic horses. Why should a veterinarian suspect rabies? Yeah, that's a great question. And it doesn't have a simple answer in that rabies is a great mimicker. And there are lots of different clinical presentations or lots of different clinical signs that are early signs of rabies. I mean, in the end stages, at the point at which the horse becomes recumbent and can't rise and is clearly encephalopathic or clearly has brain disease, it pops up to the forefront of a lot of people's minds, especially if it's been a very progressive disease with a short course. But in the beginning, these these cases don't come to the hospital with a stamp on their head that says rabies. They often come in for another reason, and that's what makes this disease tricky. And one of the reasons why you need to maintain a high index of suspicion, especially in an endemic area. Um, I work in southeast Pennsylvania, and we probably have more cases of rabies than most places, if not all places in the United States. Um, It's very prevalent in our raccoon population. And so there's a lot of spillover into other hosts, be they cats, dogs, deer, horses, cattle. And, um, you know, in my career here, I've seen three rabid horses, um, one of them, three at New Bolton, and I've consulted on additional cases. Um, I think that one of them came in as a neurologic suspect, but one came in as a colic. Um, We've had lambs that have come in for lameness. And so the way this um, virus works, you know, it it tends to, when when a horse is exposed, it travels up peripheral nerves to the spinal cord and then migrates up to the brain. And if a horse is, say, bitten in a hind leg, the first clinical signs might be a hind leg lameness. And so I think that that's really important to think about. And I'm not saying that every, I mean, certainly every lame horse does not have rabies, but they can come in as a lameness. They can come in as a choke. They can come in as a colic. They can come in for neurologic disease that's thought to be West Nile or something else. And if things are changing rapidly and the clinical signs are accumulating and the lame animal all of a sudden becomes weaker and weaker to the point that it's having trouble getting up and there's a progression of neurologic signs, particularly if there's no history of vaccination, I think that should really trigger um, some warning flags in the, in the veterinarian's mind that maybe they should consider rabies as a differential. Um, Certainly, if the horse comes in and has signs of encephalitis, maybe 
a fever, an obvious abnormal behavior, maybe some cranial nerve deficits that are obvious, difficulty eating or drinking, difficulty with balance, incoordination, those types of things, and there's no good history of rabies vaccination, then that horse immediately is identified as a rabies suspect. But again, it's the, we've, you know, I know of a horse that had colic surgery because the veterinarians were so convinced that it was abdominal pain and then they didn't find anything at surgery. And then after recovery, the horse showed a fairly rapid progression of neurologic signs and that horse ended up having rabies. So again, if you think it's a more common problem, but it, it progresses over a short period of time, um, you should consider rabies. I think that um, some of the things that I th makes me extra suspicious about this disease would be a horse with a, a rapid change in behavior or a horse that is um, kind of traumatizing itself, mutilating itself, rubbing itself incessantly. That's something that rabies can do. Um, some of them look like the classic West Nile virus case where they have muscle tremors, um, it's frequent that they um, lose their ability to eat and drink normally. Um, people talk about this um, hydrophobia, this fear of water, which really isn't the case. They're not scared of it. They just can't always swallow effectively. And at least a couple of the animals I've seen have had the profuse salivation that um, is known to be associated with rabies and also spreads the disease. So um, that would raise concern as well. Um, but again, so, it's, it's, I was just going to say, it's important that the mimicking aspect is important, that rabies can mimic pretty much any other neurologic disease and even some non-neurologic conditions. So if you work in an area where it's in the wildlife population, you need to keep it um, fairly, you know, high on your index of suspicion. So for those vets or especially techs and maybe people working even the front desk, if they get a call on a, a horse that's neurologic, maybe one of the questions that, that you suggest to ask is, are they vaccinated against rabies? I mean, even before the vet starts out or the horse is brought in? Absolutely. It's one of the, our policies here, actually, that we've instituted after um, a case made it into the hospital and it was found out after the fact that it didn't have adequate rabies vaccination history. So we, we ask our our front desk, our receptionist, our administrative assistants to try to get a rabies vaccination history on the neurologic patients, especially those with a very short history of disease. That's good. And you talked a little bit about the clinical signs. Is there anything that you can do to maybe define those a little bit more for rabies? You talked about the fast progression. Is, is that 24 hours, 48 hours? I mean, what, what are you mean by those? Yeah, the, I mean, usually the animal goes from normal to comatose and dead within about a week. So we're looking at days. And in the horses that I have seen, the one that was the trickiest to diagnose probably was fairly static or didn't have a huge amount of progression for maybe 24 hours, or maybe it was even closer to 48, and then it clearly got worse under our care. So I, if, if the animal has been stable for a month with its neurologic problems, it doesn't have rabies. You know, it's, we 
say that if they've been showing signs for up to 10 to 14 days, you should still think about it if you want to be really cautious up to three weeks. But I mean, that's stretching it because most horses, once they start showing clinical signs, they're dead within a week. Okay. And one of the things that you had mentioned when you and I were chatting before the podcast, how, how important the personal protective equipment is if you suspect rabies. Walk us through that just a little bit. Yeah, so rabies is transmitted almost always through bite or bite wounds, basically, um, that are either punctures or abrasions from an infected animal. And there's actually, you know, luckily as large animal veterinarians, our risk of um, obtaining rabies from one of our patients is a little bit less than a small animal veterinarian because dogs and cats bite more than horses do. And in fact, to the best of my knowledge, the last time I looked anyway, there was not a report of a large animal vet getting rabies from a horse through a bite wound or other mechanism, except for one case where a vet who was not wearing personal protective equipment was doing a post-mortem exam on a patient that had had rabies. I think it was actually a cow, not a horse, but um, doing post-mortem exams. And that's how um, the veterinarian was thought to be exposed. So the risk is a little bit lower, but there is a possibility of acquiring disease if saliva contacts mucous membranes. So that includes, you know, your mouth, your eyes, things like that. And so, it, and also if you have abraded skin and the saliva gets on abraded skin, it, it won't go through intact skin, but I mean, I don't know how many veterinarians have intact skin on their hands, but <laughs> there are a lot that don't certainly. Um, and so always, always gloves. I mean, that's really easy to put on. And I think that that's good practice for any kind of neurologic patient because there are other diseases like herpes virus that can be transmitted from horse to horse with vets as fomites. So just put gloves on um, and protect yourself and protect your other patients. But with rabies, it's also ideal to have some sort of face shield or goggles and mask. And the masks are a, a lot easier to come by these days with COVID. So everybody has masks in their truck probably, um, but also some kind of safety goggles because neurologic animals are unpredictable and horses are unpredictable. And you know if they're throwing their head around um, and then you know, a healthcare professional asks you a week or so later when you find out that the horse was actually positive for rabies, is there any chance you got saliva in your eye or your mouth? Unless you were wearing that personal protective equipment, it's gonna be really hard to say, no, there is absolutely no chance that any bubble of saliva hit my face and, you know, it, it's hard to say that. And if you are exposed, you know, most uh, veterinarians have, I guess, the the luxury of being vaccinated against rabies compared to the general population. So the post-exposure treatment for veterinarians is usually a little bit easier than it would be for a client who has not been previously vaccinated, but it still requires booster vaccinations and um, they can be sometimes difficult to, to find and get and expensive. So you'd rather avoid that if at all possible by wearing the personal protective equipment. So again, covering your mucous membranes and wearing gloves. Today's Disease Du Jour podcast is brought to you by Merck Animal Health, the maker of prestige vaccines, Banamine, Panicure, Regimate, Protozil, and other trusted equine health solutions. 
Merck Animal Health works for you and for horses. Learn more about Merck Animal Health's comprehensive portfolio of products, as well as their ongoing investment in our industry, profession, and community through programs such as the Respiratory Biosurveillance Program at MerckAnimalHealthUSA.com. And I know you work with students there at the university. Is there anything that you try to help them get used to the PPE? You mentioned, hey, if you've got a neurologic horse, wear gloves. I mean, is there anything that you try to teach that would be a good advice for veterinarians? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, again, to suspect the disease and to use the PPE at the first thought, like, I, w I wonder if I should consider this a rabies suspect. That's not the time, or that, I mean, that that is the time to use the PPE. The time is not a few days down the road where you're like, oh yeah, this is, this is definitely a rabies suspect. Do you want to start earlier rather than later with the personal protective equipment? I mean, we actually try, if we have a rabies suspect in the hospital, to limit student interaction with it. We tend to keep them out of the stall. As, well, we try to limit all personnel interaction with the animal to the extent that we can and still provide a, you know, adequate standard of care until we know for sure that the disease is progressive and rabies becomes more of a concern. Because again, sometimes in the beginning, you don't know. So you want to do your best to diagnose or treat the patient while at the same time protecting your staff. And so I'm assuming that you do recommend that all veterinarians, all equine veterinarians are vaccinated against rabies just in the normal course of doing practice. Yeah, and I, I do. I think that most of the veterinary schools in the United States, most if not all, require rabies vaccination for students. I mean, when I was a student at Cornell, it was required your first year that you, I mean, unless there was a, a medical contraindication, that you received the initial th series of three rabies vaccinations. And then they checked our titers to, before we hit our clinical year to make sure that we still had adequate circulating antibodies. And um, it's, it's a similar requirement here for the Penn students. I can't speak for every university, but for the most part, I think that students are, are vaccinated and I would strongly recommend it. And for those veterinarians who might have uh, graduated from vet school more than a year or two ago, maybe it's time to just boost yourself uh, for that and, and go to your doctor and, and have that taken care of, right? Well, it's more, so they don't normally boost you unless you have it in a non-detectable titer. So okay. it's something where, you know, there's no set booster protocol um, unless okay. you know you've been exposed. Um, no one really knows how long protective immunity lasts, and nobody really knows what the protective antibody titer is for people against rabies. No one really wants to be involved in the study that finds that out. <laughs> so, um, yeah, the rule of thumb is you get your initial series, and then if you know you've had exposure to a rabid animal, you um, and it, then you should have post-exposure prophylaxis. And it's also important you know, to talk to your healthcare professional and establish what exposure is. Exposure is not picking up a piece of paper that the horse drooled on. That's that's not exposure. Again, it has to be either a bite wound or saliva into mucous membranes or, you know, other fluids if it happens to be spinal fluid and you're a pathologist or something like that. But um, like blood is not considered a high risk fluid. So there and are very specific um, 
you know, requirements for what constitutes an exposure and then what that triggers in terms of the post-exposure prophylaxis. And you did mention, and I have known veterinarians who've gotten a call out for a horse that potentially had choked because it was salivating extensively and did an oral exam and come to find out the horse had rabies. So again, it's like you mentioned, some of these early clinical signs might not spark this as the top of your differential diagnoses. Correct. Yeah. And that's, I guess that's the trick. I, once you've been burned once, I guess you tend to remember it for sure. Um, you know, the famous story about, I think there was a veterinarian who made a whole group of students do an oral exam on an animal that later ended up having rabies. So, um, cause they thought it had something else, but, um, yeah. So just again, wearing gloves and, and thinking about whether or not rabies might be on your list and having, you know, routinely obtaining that vaccine history from the owners and the veterinarians of your patients and, or if you're, you're a vet in the field, making sure that you vaccinate those animals. And that's important. So why do you think it's so important that a veterinarian, not a lay person vaccinate and what tips could you, maybe some sound bites you could give to the veterinarians listening to say, Here's some things you could say to your horse owner so they're not just running out to the local store and, and grabbing some vaccine and vaccinating. Yeah. I mean, well, it's more, for, from a safety perspective, it's highly desirable that the veterinarian do it. I think that the supply chain and what's happened to that product is better known. You know, a lot of vaccines um, need to be handled and treated in a certain way, either refrigerated, not exposed to extreme um, hot or cold, you know, things break down over time. And if you're getting something from tractor supply, I mean, you'd hope that it's been handled properly along the way, but it's not exactly the same as a shipment coming to a veterinary clinic where people who are receiving it had, are used to handling drugs and other things that need to be handled in a certain way. Um, so knowing that the vaccine has been handled properly prior to administration to the animal, I think is important. Um, and then also knowing that it's actually injected into the animal properly. I mean, it's horses tend to be fairly good for injections, but I mean, everybody's had an experience when they go to give an injection to an animal and they realize there's a wet spot on the coat and the needle has somehow gone right through or it wasn't the horse moved or that, you know, there are lots of things that can go wrong. So knowing that the animal truly received the product is really important and then keeping good records. So to increase the chance that the vaccine is effective in the animal. For that reason, it's really important to have it come through the veterinarian. But the documentation aspect is also very important. And if there is a case where that animal either bites somebody, which is a little bit less common in horses, right, than with dogs or cats, but I mean, it, it can occur, or maybe more likely for a horse, if the animal is bitten by something that is known to be rabid or exposed to something that's rabid, the rules are very different depending on whether there's any vaccination history. Um, the other thing is if that animal ever needs veterinary attention and or develops neurologic disease and there's no veterinary proof of rabies vaccination, the owner might have trouble acquiring care for it, especially, you know, at a referral institution like ours, we treat a rabies suspect very differently in terms of what procedures we'll perform than we do a horse that comes in with a really good veterinary vaccination history. 
And so I think for all those reasons, the ability to get care, the likelihood that it will work, as well as various, you know, um, legal aspects, it's really important to have the vet do it. That's a good idea. And vets can use those points to, to help their horse owners, you know, be a little more compliant. So let's take a big step back. I mean, you work with a lot of neurologic horses. And as you said, a lot of them can have similar clinical signs. So when you're doing a complete neurologic exam, when you have a horse that comes in with suspected neurologic disease, walk the veterinarians in our audience through what your process is for that neurologic exam. So I usually start, you know, when the owner is present, of obtaining a history from the owner of what signs they have observed at home. And that can be really helpful because, as I mentioned earlier, rabies does often cause changes in behavior. And while the owner might not pick up more subtle signs of neurologic dysfunction, they know the personality of the animal better than you do. And so one horse that I had that was confirmed to have rabies the owner said all of a sudden he started being aggressive to the pony in his field that he had previously been best friends with. And yet that horse at the same time started acting really kind of quote cuddly with the people around it, like almost wanting to crawl into their lap and in their personal space, which again was unusual behavior for the horse. So I observe the horse's behavior in the stall and what they do when they're in hand, but also question the owners about whether they've noticed any changes, especially recently, in the way the horse interacts with people, other horses, its environment. Um, then I usually do a complete cranial nerve examination. And again, it's it's fairly common for rabies to cause kind of diffuse encephalitis and it might affect cranial nerves. So whether they're having trouble seeing or have abnormal eye movements or have lost sensation or strength on one side of their face, the loss of the ability to swallow or chew appropriately, um, even they, they sound different when they whinny if they lose control of their larynx. So any of those things could be a clue that you have a neurologic disease affecting the brainstem or the brain, and rabies is a disease that can do that. And um, then, you know, move on to assessing the way that they're moving. Have they lost coordination? Are they weak? Um, are, are there any areas where they've lost um, hair or skin because they are rubbing at an area or biting at an area? Um, that can be suggestive of potentially some almost neuropathic type pain or abnormal sensory function that can go along with rabies. Um, it's the places within the brain and the spinal cord where the virus likes to go, it, it tends to affect the, the gray matter of the brain and the spinal cord more so than the white matter. And the, the gray matter is where um, the lower motor neurons are going to innervate muscles. So as a result, you see muscle weakness and muscle tremors and muscle fasciculations. Um, more so with rabies than, say, a horse that's a wobbler that has spinal cord compression. Um, so sometimes you see that either when you're standing next to the horse or when the horse is moving, that they're unusually weak or have these muscle tremors and fasciculations. Um, loss of tail tone and anal tone at, at the back end of the horse or, again, abnormal rubbing of an area is something that I would consider. And none of, again, none of those problems are specific to rabies, but especially if you see multiple signs, it would be concerning. And then a fever sometimes too. Not every horse has a fever. It's, it's really, they can have a totally normal temperature and still have rabies. But 
if they have a fever, then you're oftentimes thinking a little bit more about one of these viral neurologic diseases than say a disease like EPM or spinal cord compression where the horse tends to be systemically well and not have a fever. And again, is there anything else um, that you would like to talk to veterinarians, vet students, vet techs about on equine rabies? Not that I can think of right now, um, other than, again, just be familiar with it, especially in these areas and um, keep it in the back of your mind and pull it to the forefront of your mind if you have a a case that's progressive or started with something other than neurologic disease and then suddenly got neurologic disease as, you know, in front of your eyes almost while you're working with it or going back to the farm to see it. And I guess the last thing would be to to test patients. If you do have a horse that has displayed progressive neurologic disease over a short period of time and that horse dies or is euthanized, you should try your best to test the horse, to send the head off for testing. Because of course, the only way that you can be 100% sure that the horse had rabies is to do the um, direct fluorescent antibody testing on the brain tissue. And if you don't do that, you, you can miss cases. And I think that probably there are cases that are missed all the time because nobody tested the animal and we get away with it because horses are less likely than other species to transmit it to people, but the risk is there. And so in order to kind of safeguard public health, I think remembering to think about if you do have a horse that's died or been euthanized, should I test this horse for rabies is important to think about. Well, some really great tips and pointers here today, Dr. Johnson, and we, we really appreciate you spending some time with us and talking about it. And we appreciate our audience joining us today for Disease Du Jour, and special thanks to our 2021 sponsor, Merck Animal Health. We invite our listeners to rate our episodes of Disease Du Jour, and you can listen to it on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And if you have any questions or suggestions, you can send an email to me at kbrown at equinenetwork.com. Disease Du Jour is a production of the Equine Podcast Network, an entity of the Equine Network, LLC.